Welcome to the Business Bookshelf, where I interview business authors and talk about their newly released books. My name is Lance Pepler. Today I interview Richard Vague about his book called An Illustrated Business History of the United States. So Richard is Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He's the author of A Brief History of Doom, which is a chronicle of major world financial crises, The Next Economic Disaster, a book with a new approach for predicting and preventing financial crises, and the book we're talking about today, The Illustrated Business History of the United States. So from Benjamin Franklin to Robert Morris, Steve Jobs, Oprah Winfrey, and Bill Gates, Madam C.J. Walker, Martha Stewart, Jay-Z, and many more in between, an illustrated business history of the United States is a sweeping, lively, and highly approachable history of American business from the nation's founding to the 21st century. So I was speaking to Richard as he was driving to the Washington Capitol for some important meetings. And so the quality of the recording is sometimes not the greatest. But Richard is a leading economist, an expert on the history of business in the United States. I'm sure you're really going to enjoy hearing what he has to say. So here we go. Enjoy the interview. Richard, thank you so much for joining. Uh, you've had an illustrious career, and uh, I mentioned it in the introduction, but Richard, could you give us an overview of your career and what you, you know, you've done up to now, and then we'll talk about your fantastic book. Uh, you're wonderful to say that. Uh, I was in banking for 35 years and uh, then sold. I was uh, CEO and, and uh, uh, controlling shareholder of a of a banking business. Uh, we got out of that business. We got into the energy business uh, for about five years, electricity and natural gas. We sold that business. And then I got into the venture capital business where we've been invested in about 50 different companies. Uh, but we've also done a lot of work with economic uh, data and the like. So, and then they approached me to come work with them uh, at the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, and so you'll notice, Richard, that I'm not American, I'm South African and actually speaking to you from South Africa, but that didn't stop me from really enjoying your book. And your book is The Illustrated Business History of the United States. And so maybe, Richard, if you could start by just giving an overview of the book and, and your purpose for putting so much effort into writing this illustrious and graphical book. Well, thank you. Uh, it's a business history of the United States really starting from the American Revolution to 2015. So we cover almost you know, the entire course of American business history. I've divided into 14 chapters, which I view as the 14 key eras of American business history. Uh, and we cover you know, all the key things that are going on. We have a lot of data. We show which were the largest businesses in each era, which were the largest banks which were the wealthiest individuals in each year, key inventions. And then we kind of tie it together with a narrative of the, of the key trends in each period. And did you, did you find that people were asking you for this or did you just feel that you, you, know, you had an interest in it yourself? It's not the first book you've written. Uh, and so you know, when did your love for researching the history of American business start? Well, we have done a lot of analysis of financial crises, mm. starting, of course, with the 2008 crisis. 
So we decided to really take that uh, deep and we put together a history of financial crises over 200 years in the six largest economies in the world. So the UK, uh, France, China, Japan, the United States, Germany. And as we were doing that, I was frankly appalled at the lack of data and information uh, once you went back 100 years or so. Mm. Uh, there were not lists of the largest businesses in 1810, for example. There were not a lot of banking data from that era. You know, there have been countless histories written about politics and social aspects and wars, but almost none written about business history and the, and the data and information was very lacking. So, you know, putting together the information about the crisis of 1819, for example, which was an, a very important crisis in American history, or the crisis in 1796, mm. we weren't able to find a lot of data. We had to do a lot of original research to put that together. And as I was writing that book, I said, I kind of vowed to myself, I'm going to put together a business history of the United States to follow this one. Hmm. And, and you did exactly that. And, and land plays an important role in the history of American business. Could you talk to us about that? Because, you know, a lot of the wealth at the beginning was based on land. Where, when did it start, you know, owning land and the role of land in, in business? Well, when you talk about American business history, most folks immediately go to manufacturing and the rudimentary manufacturing efforts uh, in places like Lowell, Massachusetts. But the real founding business in America was land. And, mm. you know, the place I started in the book, which I think is a very epical moment, is when a very young George Washington and his brothers and some other wealthy Virginians put together a land company they called the Ohio Valley Company or the Ohio Land Company uh, to buy 500,000 acres in sure. the Ohio Valley. And that's just the kind of dramatic, massive land acquisition strategy that dominated what was going on in America during that period. And it continued you know, after the revolution with greater and greater land purchases by a variety of wealthy Americans. And interestingly, one of the causes of the American Revolution that's almost never discussed is that Britain was prohibiting the colonists from buying and developing land west of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh -huh. you know, they were, so they were kind of pinned to the coast. And folks like Patrick Henry and George Washington and Robert Morris and others really wanted to buy land, but it was prohibited by proclamations uh, in London in 1763 and then 1773. And that's part of what made George Washington so interested in the revolution. Um, you know, and from then on, the Boston Tea Party, et cetera, et cetera. But um, even now today, it's still an important aspect of the economy. Like if you look at the super, the super wealthy Americans, they all seem to have ranches somewhere and, you know, thousands of acres that they, they have in their possession. So land is still really important today, isn't it? Land is still the biggest asset on the balance sheet of individuals and businesses across the United States. Mm. It's bigger than stocks. It's bigger than you know, precious metals by far. It's, it's really the dominant uh, asset uh, in probably any country. And so, yes, we see this 
We also see it in the structure of our debt. If you look at the $35 trillion in private sector debt in the United States, half of that is real estate debt, mortgages on homes, sure, yeah. loans for office buildings and the like. So any way you look at it, land is front and center in American business. And, and we kind of see that in emerging areas as well. We see uh, folks like Amazon, you know, building lots of warehouses across the United States. We see folks like Google building lots of server farms. We see yeah. new industries like genetic engineering who need lots and lots of space for their, uh, their laboratories. And so in places like Philadelphia, where I live, there's a building boom right now for wet lab space and other space to accommodate the genetic engineering revolution. Yeah. And talking about, you know, companies like Amazon, obviously Jeff Bezos has his Blue Origin space in his ranch somewhere. And, um, you know, and obviously SpaceX has, has got a, a, an area as well. And um, so to move on from that, I, and another underlying or continual theme during your book is the rise of the U.S. economy. And it, it, I just found it really, really interesting how rapidly it grew. And, and the population grew and the wealth grew, and it relatively quickly became the most dominant economy in the world. Could you tell us the factors that made, you know, helped the U.S. to expand so rapidly to become so dominant? Well, uh, it was geography that was the real enabler of rapid American growth. So we had, the United States is blessed with perhaps the best geography in the world when you consider uh, the defensibility of the country. You know, it's, yeah. it's relatively isolated from Europe and Asia. It has coastlines that were and remain easily defend, relatively easier to defend. It's got a magnificent river system perhaps the best river system in the world, which enables transportation of agriculture. It's got, you know, very arable, fertile soil. So, you know, when folks landed in America, even though they were looking for, for gold, they found something better. And it enabled the United States to grow from, you know, what we might call a startup country to the wealthiest industrialized country in the world by 1870. And then yeah. by the time you get to 1914, the United States is bigger than England, France, and Germany combined. Yeah, that, that is incredible. Uh, incredible growth. And people need to read your book. Just to remind everyone, I'm speaking to Richard Vague about his book, fantastic book, The Illustrated Business History of the United States. And Richard, we get on to a subject that you mentioned earlier, and you obviously have a, a love and interest in, is the financial crises that have been, um, you know, in, the American has, has to endure. And there have been at least 11 financial crises that you mention in your book. And so two questions about this is, why have there been so many financial crises? And is this the nature of the economy? Do, you know, does, does the economy go in these ebbs and flows, like wealth and then crisis and then you know, those type of, of flows in the economy? Well, the, the basis or the cause of financial crises is most often overlending, really rampant overlending. We all know this from the 08 crisis because we, it was a mortgage and real estate crisis where lenders were giving uh, individuals loans that had no jobs, no income, no assets. Nevertheless, they were making, you know, multi-hundred thousand dollar mortgage loans. So 
Yeah. Once you have the financial industry over lending, the inevitable result is overbuilding. So you have overcapacity. You have way more homes than you need or way more office buildings than you need or way more land than you can commercially develop. And that's been a recurring uh, theme really around the world, but very notably in the United States. You know, our first major crises is in 1796 when all these wealthy Americans are t- taking 100,000 or million acre positions, uh, all, all bought entirely on credit and all bought for an amount of land that was far more than there was demand for, even with lots of settlers moving to the United States. So many of those folks, including one of our founding fathers or several of our founding fathers, Robert Morris, James Wilson and others, ending up in debtor's prison, uh, dying (laughs) young because of the stress related to this. George, very poignant moment in 1798 when George Washington goes to debtor prison to have dinner with Robert Morris, his old ally in the American Revolution. So, and that has continued the next, and it's always the same thing. It's speculative lending. It's massive over lending. It's not just some little bump in the road. It's way more. In the 1837 crisis, for example, in 1830, the U.S. government had sold 2 million acres in that one year on credit. By the time you get to 1836, they're selling 24 million acres on credit uh, to folks. So, you know, you, you've the value of land in obscure little Western locations like Cincinnati and Chicago have gone from, you know, $5 an acre to $1,000 an acre just in just a couple of years. It's it's an unsustainable proposition. And so, yes, we see that recurring in American history, you know, in 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, and on and on and on. I Amazing. believe you, you could control it, but nevertheless, our regulatory uh, community has not controlled it. And so I, I think it's reasonable to expect that might occur in the future as well. Absolutely. And that, that's the theme for my next question. But just to comment, uh, you know, when I was looking at those financial crises and you mentioned individuals and how often it was the greed of a couple of individuals that almost caused the downfall of the economy of the, you know, the America, which was, I thought was amazing. But in 2014, you wrote another book titled The Next Economic Disaster, Why It's Coming and How to Avoid It. And so I, I do want to ask you questions around that. Is this the financial crisis that you might have been refer, that you refer to in that book, or is there another one coming? Well, anytime you have a massive buildup in debt and in too short a period of time, so a very rapid accumulation of debt, you need to be concerned. And that is not the situation in the United States in 2021. Ah. Even though we've seen a real pickup in the last year or two. And so, you know, I want to watch it closely over the next couple of years to see if it gets out of control. But it is the situation in a number of countries around the world. Uh, China, very notably, has had this extraordinary buildup in debt uh, over the last few years. And uh, and there's every reason to be cautious there, even though their government kind of controls everything and in theory should be able to manage this. Uh, We see it in other countries like France unexpectedly has had a massive buildup in debt. So, you know, that's one we'd watch as well. So, you know, for us, the key is a threshold. If you see about a 20 
plus percent growth in uh, private sector debt to GDP in about a five-year period. It's time to really focus on that area because uh, there's a high likelihood of trouble. Hmm. And, and so does government debt not play a big part then? Because you know, obviously there are huge stimulus packages and the COVID relief bills and all that sort of thing. Is it more the private debt than the government debt? Because that must have increased tremendously. Yeah, we've studied that over, you know, 43 crises over 200 years in six countries. And government debt never, in these large developed countries, is never the, the cause of a financial crisis or banking crisis. It's huh. private sector debt. And keep in mind, even though government debt gets way more attention, there's more private debt in our country and in the world by far than government debt. So it's the bigger determinant of economic outcomes and the one to watch more closely to understand economic trends. And one little factor that you know ought to make that a little bit on the self-evident side is government can always issue more debt or print more money, as, as folks like to say, to pay off its debt. You know, businesses and individuals don't have the luxury of being able to print money to pay their debt. So that's that's the area where you get credit problems. Yeah, no, no. I wish I had the ability to print money. So now leading on to the next question and you're heading off to the capital and I presume to discuss economic economy situation or questions or something related to that. So I'd like to ask you, how do you see the US economy at the moment? Is it going into a boom period? Where, where do you see it at the moment? Well, I, I think, you know, given the fact that we're battling COVID, hmm. I think the United States economy has fared fairly well. The government has um, uh, come in in a dramatic way. Both Congress and the Federal Reserve have provided enormous support to the economy. Mm. So I do think we're relatively stable. I think, you know, I don't think the economy is going to be great. I think we've got plenty of trouble to deal with over the next couple of years, including some short-term inflation. I think the country continues to be more unequal. So you have a lot of folks, uh, you know, in the lower end of the spectrum that are struggling mightily right now uh, with the situation. But I think overall, given all that, we're in okay shape. Uh, but as I mentioned before, there are probably other areas of the world that aren't in as good a shape as we are. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I was speaking, interviewing an author from, I think, Cincinnati the other day, uh, a couple of months ago, and he was saying that, he, according to him, things were picking up. So, that, you know, the economy was was growing in his part of the world. And so I'm pleased to hear that you you think it's not uh, a bad outlook and, and, and things are okay. So my next question, and, and Richard, you'll be pleased to know that I've only got two questions more to ask you. But the, the tech companies, Google, Apple, Amazon, um, you know, AWS, they've been in the news and, you know, there's deregulation and all these kind of regulation uh, aimed at them, et cetera. And I, I presume those type of companies have helped to grow um, the U.S. economy uh, today. H how do you see it working? Do you think that tech companies will just get bigger and bigger and bigger or, or is there a kind of saturation level that will happen with these tech companies in the States? Well, they have gotten amazingly big. And no. that's not untypical. You know, we saw railroads get, you know, enormous in the 1800s and, you know, have to be dealt with. We saw, you know, the antitrust legislation in 1911 that was brought against uh, the uh, 
the oil company, uh, Standard Oil, New Jersey, and American Tobacco. Those were the two famous antitrust cases uh, at that time. So the fact that certain industries get too big and that has to be dealt with one way or the other is pretty typical. Mm. And, it, and it tends to happen only they, after they've gotten, been really bad, big for a long time. And we're at a point where some of these companies are so big, have so much wealth, and can get into any business they want to without any uh, regulatory restrictions. Yeah. So I suspect that there will be some regulation or lawsuits or something that's going to change the course of things. But I would note, importantly, that doesn't mean that tech's not going to continue to grow. It will. And if you think back on Standard Oil, the breakup of Standard Oil in, in 1911 only increased the growth of that industry. Yeah. John D. Rockefeller's wealth in probably doubled or tripled from that point forward. Same was true for the cigarette company, American uh, Tobacco, that was split into three companies. So the fact that we deal with potential antitrust issues does not mean that that industry won't continue to skyrocket. Hmm. And so, Richard, my, my last um, question, and then I'll let you go to your important meetings, is the U.S. economy, and you mentioned China and their debt levels uh, and, and other countries' debt levels. How do you see the U.S. economy in the future? And I think you've, we've spoken to it a bit about it in the, the interview already. But do you think the U.S. economy will continue to dominate the world? Or do you think it will be overtaken eventually by China or India or one of the developing nations? Well, we've had any number of business rivals during the our 200 plus years as a country. Yeah. So first, our big rival was Britain. Then we had a big rival in uh, Germany. And then we had a big rival in Russia. And then we had a big rival in Japan. And and we, we emerged from all of those. But China is different in one res important respect. And that is, it's the only business rival the United States has had that had a greater population in the uh. United States. And to a certain extent, a population is destiny. And, you know, it's going to be hard for China not to rival us. They've got the size and the resources and the commitment. You know, they are laser focused on improving their technology and genetic engineering and electric vehicles and supercomputers and uh, solar and so many other areas that we've got, you know, about least advanced areas that can take our economy forward. So yeah. I think we're going to do well. I think China's going to be nipping at our heels. As always, I would bet on the United States, but we're not going to continue to have a hold our position in the world unless we make a concerted effort uh, uh, to, to move things forward. Mm. And that's what I was worried about most with, you know, with the administration, that's uh, you know, the old administration where, was focus on oil again instead of solar and, you know, focusing a little bit on the old type of technologies rather than the new ones. And so hopefully that's a more of a focus now. We're investing, you know, in the, the, the newer exponential technologies that exist and, and that China, as you said, are focusing so heavily on. But Richard, thank you so, so much. I really, really appreciate your time. And I think anyone who's interested in business particularly the United States, but anyone, because if you, if you read about the history, then history repeats itself. You can learn the trends. You can uh, you know, learn what's happening in the world according to you know, the economy. 
And I think any business leader should read your book. And it's called The Illustrated Business History of the United States. And so thank you so much, Richard, for joining. I really, really appreciate it. I'm grateful that you would have me. Thank you. And I hope you, the listener, found this as interesting and as useful as I did. Please go and buy the book. The link will be in the show notes. If you'd like to contact me, then please do. My email is lance.ideastorm.co.za or website is businessbookshelfpodcast.com. You can hear this interview. You can hear interviews about innovation or leadership or communication or a whole range of business topics. And so once again, thank you very much, Richard. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye.